follow the money. Investigators probe the money laundering piece of the Trump-Russia probe. Hi, I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan, and this is Political Insanity. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I try to make some sense out of our insane political reality. Because if you feel like the world has gone mad, well, politically, it really has. It has, Matt. Uh, We try to bring a little sanity back to our listeners' lives by bringing in big names to break down the impact of the Trump administration. And we've got a big one today. We've got a great guest, and we welcome Michael Zeldin to the program. That's right. Michael Zeldin is a former deputy to Robert Mueller, a former independent counsel himself, and he's an expert in prosecuting money laundering. So I'm really curious, you know, to hear what he has to say, his insights into this piece of the investigation. He really has, and and we're very fortunate to have him. Michael, welcome to Political Insanity. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. You're also a CNN legal analyst, former federal prosecutor. You've worked closely with Robert Mueller in the Justice Department's criminal division. So much has been reported about this investigation, but I have to say the piece of it that I think we've heard the least about is the money laundering portion. We know that that's being investigated, but we don't know a lot of information about it. You are an expert in the prosecution of money laundering. And and how significant a factor in this investigation do you think the money laundering piece is based on what you know and based on what's been reported? Well, we know for certain that it's a big deal as it relates to Paul Manafort and Rick Gates because they have been charged in a multi-count indictment with money laundering. And the charges in that indictment allege essentially that illicit money was brought into the United States, and it was essentially laundered uh, by Manafort and Gates. The allegations with respect to President Trump have not been leveled by any prosecutor, but there are a lot of people who are talking about whether or not he similarly, in his private dealings before he became president, had connections with Russian oligarchs and Russian organized crime figures who may have infused money into his business operation. So that's the heart of the the theory or the allegations. But as I say, nothing has yet been made public. And could you just define money laundering for our listeners? Because I think uh, some people get confused about the term. Just give maybe give some example of of, of a case you had to deal with. and, And what does that mean? Well, so money laundering definitionally is an attempt to make dirty money look to be clean money. So the way money launderers, the profession of money launderers operates is they work with people who have money that is derived from crime typically. They move that money through a series of intermediary financial transactions so that at the end you have broken the the trail and the money on the end looks as if it was derived from lawful means. And that sort of is the way it works. You think about it all the time in the drug cartel business where drug money is generated on the sales of narcotics and then it is given to professional money launderers who, in the end, uh, make it appear as if it was legitimate. And with that legitimately sourced money now by houses and cars and yachts and other extravagant um, items. And in respect of President Trump, The allegation is that that illicit money came from overseas 
and was used to purchase or invest in his real estate properties. And for years, allegations and whispers had been made that uh, the Trump organization was a haven for dirty Russian money. Uh, No successful prosecution, though. Now, uh, Senate Democrat Ron Wyden is demanding that the Treasury Department turn over banking and real estate records around President Trump's sale of an estate in Palm Beach to a Russian oligarch. It was one of the most expensive private house sales on record. This Russian billionaire bought a house off Trump for $95 million after he paid $41 million for it a few years before. That looks like money laundering, but not necessarily. No, it could be a bad business deal. Right. But it could be money laundering. It could be, could not be. Yeah. That's right. Oftentimes, I'm sorry to interrupt. I thought you had finished. Oh, no, it's fine. Oftentimes, the way a money launderer will work is they'll pay over the value of an item because it doesn't matter to them so much that they've overpaid, but rather that they make their illegal money look legal. And so if they can invest it in a piece of property and then uh, sell the property as that fellow who bought the Trump property for $95 million after Trump paid 45 just a few years earlier, then he has the proceeds of that sale as the source of his money, and it has broken the connection between the original money that was put into it and now it is what he can represent as monies he generated from the sale of real property in Florida. Michael, let me ask about the overall investigation and and really the steps, uh, because uh, you you were an independent counsel. Uh, Robert Mueller is a special counsel. That's a different designation with different responsibilities. So at the end of all this, or at least at the halfway point, whenever um, Mr. Mueller wants to report anything, he reports it to uh, Rod Rosenstein, correct? Yes. The way it works, uh, when I was appointed, there was still an independent counsel statute. Okay. And the court appointed us. There was a special three-judge panel that appointed independent counsels, and so myself and Ken Starr and others who were appointed under the statute were appointed under that statute, and we reported back to the three-judge panel and issued a a year-end, or rather an investigation-end report. Okay. Mueller, because there is no statute, operates under the Code of Federal Regulations. There are specific regulations that govern his um, conduct, and it is true that the, the Attorney General is the person who's supposed to oversee that, but because Attorney General Sessions has had to recuse himself from the Russian investigation, Deputy Attorney General Ron Rosenstein is the one who oversees Mueller, and Mueller uh, coordinates with Rosenstein, and Rosenstein has testified, in fact, uh, in congressional oversight hearings that he is in close contact with Mueller, and they are in agreement about the investigative steps that Mueller um, can take, because Rosenstein defines the mandate, the investigative mandate of Mueller. So what do you think, then, knowing what you know about this man, Bob Mueller, and knowing what you know about the process, what do you think is the most likely sequence of next events. Uh, on Friday, we saw the number three at DOJ, Rachel Brand, stepped down. Now we're learning she didn't want to be the next in line to oversee this Russia investigation. 
What do you think's coming? What are you hearing and what do you anticipate? I know it can be hard to anticipate a, a number of potential outcomes, but based on what you know, what are you anticipating next? Well, I'm a bad predictor of the future. <laughs> I, I, I can barely predict the past. But that said, I have two scenarios. One is that the president takes the advice of counsel, Ty Cobb, most uh, predominantly, who is his White House counsel overseeing his Russia investigation response to Mueller, and continues to cooperate and sits down for an interview with um, Mueller's team and tells the truth, and uh, Mueller is then able to reach a conclusion about the president's culpability. That's one route. That's the best route for the president to follow. The worst route for the president to follow is for him to wake up in the middle of the early morning and have an explosion about Russia and fire Rosenstein or induce Rosenstein to fire Mueller, which would provoke a quitting on the part of Rosenstein. And as you said, Rachel Brand, who would have then taken over, is leaving. And so without an associate attorney general in place, it would go to the Eastern District of Virginia U.S. attorney, who is next in the succession line. And all of these you know, professional attorneys have to make a decision whether they want to be like Elliot Richardson, who resigned from being attorney general rather than fire Archibald Cox in the Watergate investigation, or they want to be like Solicitor General Bork, who in fact fired Archibald Cox. And they have two, you know, sort of gravestone um, markers. One says, noble man, Richardson, and the other one says, carried out an illegal order. And so you make your own choice about um, how you want to be uh, remembered in history. And when uh, Mr. Mueller makes these recommendations to uh, Rod Rosenstein, uh, are, is it a certainty they'll become public? Could could uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein just say, you know, this this is really not worthy of going public? Well, he has that authority. He, in the end, when the report is issued, it um, can be retained um, privately. But generally speaking, my experience has been in cases of this level of visibility, that the public interest overrides the need for uh, secrecy, if you will. It may be that, like we're seeing with the Nunez and Schiff memos, that there is a classified and an unclassified version of it, but that the unclassified part of it gets um, released to the public because there's just too much public interest and too much of a need uh uh, to know, it, it seems to me. Oh, well, yeah, overwhelming interest. What about uh, the possible... I'm just sorry to say, we do know that at the conclusion of his work, he has to provide the attorney general with a confidential report explaining the decisions that he reached as special counsel. Can the special counsel indict a sitting president? I've heard differing legal opinions on that. Well, it's unknown whether the president can be indicted while in office. There has been no case of that. The Supreme Court has not issued an opinion on it, and constitutional law professors are on both sides of that debate. The Starr investigation did not indict um, President Clinton. They instead referred the matter to the House of Representatives 
under a, an abuse of office um, heading, saying that we are not going to decide whether to indict, but you, Congress, should investigate to determine whether this conduct, which would have been indictable were this a private citizen, is worthy of an uh, article of impeachment. That's how it proceeded in Watergate as well. And maybe that's how it proceeds here. Um, but Mueller has to make a decision about that, and he has capable officers from the Solicitor General's office on his staff, who I'm sure are researching this as we speak. Well, well Michael, I think the obstruction of justice is uh, really the most uh, accessible charge, if you will, that's been out there in terms of the information that's been provided so far. And and I know you, you can't predict the future, but from what you've seen presented so far and and the you know who's been interviewed and so forth do you think uh, mr. Mueller will simply criticize the president or go all the way to uh, indict or suggest impeachment well it all depends on how things play out over the coming weeks and months okay so I have I keep a list um, which consists of acts that might be considered obstructionist by the president. It's about 25 points long at the moment, um, and (laughs) it includes things like, was the firing of Comey an act of obstruction? Was the request by the president to his national security advisors to intervene with the FBI to stop the investigation? Was it appropriate for him to ask the chairman of the Congressional Investigation Committees to put a halt to the investigation? Was it okay for him to order his White House counsel, McGahn, to order Rosenstein to fire Mueller? And and on and on the list goes. And these are factors that the special counsel will have to take into consideration in determining whether there is obstructionist behavior. However, I think that you really can get to a tipping point in that analysis if the president is interviewed under oath, as I expect he will, because the grand jury's you know, sort of right to every man's evidence is pretty paramount since the Supreme Court decided the United States versus Nixon uh, case. And because he will likely testify under oath, the question will be whether he lies while under oath. And if all those little things that I just ticked off, the firing of Comey and telling Comey to let the Flynn investigation go and firing Preet Bharara in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan, who was investigating um, aspects of Trump's business, if all of those things then are added to the president lied under oath, then you're in a much closer situation to the type of behavior that gave rise to the articles of impeachment against um, Bill Clinton, where they said that the lying under oath in combination with the activities that they viewed as obstructionist constituted abuse of office. And um, Article 1 of the uh, impeachment against Clinton was that he gave false and misleading testimony um, in regard to his relationship with Monica Lewinsky, and that in Article 3, he attempted attempted to obstruct justice 
um, by delaying and impeding and covering up and concealing evidence in the Paula Jones federal civil rights suit. So there you see this notion of obstruction behavior plus a lie equaling um, a referral to the House of Representatives for consideration of an article of impeachment. And that could be the president's most, you know, sort of, that, that could be that which threatens the, pers- the president's liberty more than anything else. And lie plus those other acts. Of course, uh, let's be frank, this House of Representatives is not going to impeach this president unless it's a different party controlling the House. Right. That's it, it, probably going to go on the ballot in November if, if we get a decision before then. It, it, with all that, Michael, would, would is the president's advisors correct in saying just don't just don't go testify? Uh, try to get out of it. Is there any way he can get out of it? I don't think so. I think that the the case law, starting with United States versus Nixon and, and going forward since, essentially say that if the prosecutor has a need for the evidence that they can't acquire any other way and that evidence does not implicate national security, then the grand jury's right to know overrides the assertion of executive privilege. So I think that the grand jury's right to know will override the president's assertions of executive privilege, particularly so in this case because executive privilege tends to contemplate advice by presidential senior advisors to the president with respect to policy matters. In this case, a lot of which is under inquiry, whether or not there was coordination between the Trump campaign and and surrogates of Russia, whether or not there was a conspiracy as it relates to the hacking of the DNC and the Podesta emails, all of that stuff predates the president's arrival in the White House. And so there's no executive privilege that can be asserted for a period before which you are the executive. Okay. Yeah. It's pretty hard to see how either whether he asserts executive privilege or whether this occurs before there is a a viable executive privilege to be asserted, he prevails. And And I think the answer is he will have to testify. He will have to. And and can't... And I've heard this president is, is, you know, is unique in a lot of ways. So we'll, we'll <laughs> sure. Yes, indeed. One last question. I've heard differing legal opinions on this, too. Can he also assert the power of, of pardon for himself and his closest advisors and those who've been indicted or who might be indicted? Well, that's an interesting question. And I, as I told you, I have this list of you know 25-ish things that I think Mueller might want to look at in his evaluation of whether the president engaged in any conduct that amounts to obstruction of justice. And I have no you know, sort of predetermined outcome about how Mueller should or shouldn't answer that. But at the end of my list, I say to myself, note, were he to pardon people central to this investigation for the purpose of having them not testify against him, would that constitute an abuse of office? And so I'm asking the same question. And it seems to me that were he to use his pardon power, which he has the clear right to do, but were he to use it in an obstructionist way, that might be further indication of either an abuse of office and an impeachable offense or to be factored into in Mueller's calculation of whether the president can be charged with obstruction of justice for acts that he has a constitutional right to undertake and can he be indicted 
while in office for that behavior. Hmm. Lots of things that constitutional law professors are going to discuss for a long, long time. A path-breaking time we're in. Man, may you live in interesting times. Exactly. I, I, I gave a speech recently at, at, a, at a school, and I um, ended the speech by saying, the only thing I know for sure is that I know nothing for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's about how we feel, too, which is why we're doing this podcast. But, Michael Zeldin, thank you so much for giving us some of your time. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Yeah. It wasn't it great to talk to him? And, gosh, it's so true. It's like... We talked to all these world-class experts on this thing, and, and it's so complicated. And even the most informed people really are still grasping to try to get their hands around it as well. Right, and our guests have been so generous. I mean, Michael literally just came off the CNN set in Washington and to answer these questions for us. And you know, to me, the headline from that is he feels the president's going to have to testify. There's going to be no getting around it. And then, you know, I think all hell breaks loose after that. That's right. Well, it is insane. It's an insane time in our history. But Matt and I are trying to keep up with it as best we can here on this podcast. This has been Political Insanity. I'm Melissa Ross. And I'm Matt Corrigan. More to come. Keep listening.